Greetings, I'm Brad Thomas, and this is After All is Said and Done. Welcome. After all is said and done, then we will know, won't we? But perhaps we can know now, if we choose to. And while I didn't choose to (laughs) intend to plan on beginning this program with this, I have made a decision to do so. Hillary Rodham Clinton made a statement while she was being interviewed, and it was concerning the protest movement by majority black athletes in the National Football League. And she said the following, quote, That's what black athletes kneeling was all about. That's not against our anthem or our flag. Actually, kneeling is a reverent position. It was to demonstrate in a peaceful way against racism and injustice in our criminal system. End quote. Well, I find this interesting if that's the word, on this hand, is that I've heard person after person after person multiplied, and I don't know how many times, reference this movement, if you will, this activity, this activism, this political activism, And they have ascribed various different meanings to it, reasons for it, what it is supposed to symbolize and demonstrate. But Hillary Rodham here, she tells us what it's really all about. Now, I don't disagree with her attributing this as far as what started it, with it being a protest against perceived, imagined, and perceived racism and injustice, not just in our criminal justice system, as she ascribes it, but it across the landscape of the United States of America. Just this terrible, pervasive, incessant, systemic, anti-black racism that pervades the landscape, according to the likes of dear old Colin Kaepernick, who, of course, was raised by whites, And the other NFL black players who believe they have been oppressed and or are currently being enslaved by the National Football League. Unlike the players of yesteryear in the National Football League and the American Football League, many of whom were black, but at that time, More were white than black, unlike today. 
and who made very good wages, but blue-collar scale wages nonetheless, but at the top rung of blue-collar wages, as compared to today when they are either mega-millionaires or multi-millionaires or mere millionaires while they are yet in their 20s, and they are feted and treated to the best fare that there is, including when they're in college. They are the VIPs, and they have access to the most beautiful girls, and so many of them gravitate to white girls, in case you haven't noticed, but the most beautiful co-eds, and all of the party favors, and so-called paper classes. Not that they have to be paper classes. They could be classes in black studies, African-American studies, women's studies, phys ed, various physical education, and various other such things. But then, for those who are so fortunate, and I do mean fortunate, not only to have received a college education free of charge with all of the bells and whistles, including room and board, transportation, you name it, everything else, and to be treated as the ultimate VIPs, the heroes on campus, not for doing heroic things, but for being talented, successful athletes. Then, for those who make their way to the NFL, courtesy, typically, of sports programs at universities that are dedicated to enabling them to enter the NFL and which use the success of players having ascended to the NFL to recruit other top high school athletes. And it continues. It goes on and on. They receive the best of the best of the best. And you will invariably hear them saying how deserving they are because they work harder than anybody and they make all these terrible sacrifices and blah, 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 blah. Not the workers in the mines who at least in my grandfather's day never even saw the light of day unless it was the Lord's day. Or the loggers who, again, in another grandfather. <laughs> life experience, never saw the light of day unless it was under the shroud of gigantic, gigantic trees they were working on or in a clearing where they had cleared away trees or on the Lord's day. Because they went to work while it was dark and they returned when it was dark. But at least the loggers had the advantage of being under the open skies, except they 
toiled laboriously and dangerously, and he died while working as a logger in these vast forests and using rudimentary tools, unlike today, or the various other laborers, workers, who give their all exhaustingly in order to carve out a living for their family for their wife and their children, and to provide better for their children than they had for themselves. And then those in the military, those who have served in the military during the great wars and those wars not referenced as being great wars and who have gone through such great amounts of suffering. But no... These football players, they work harder than anybody else, vastly harder than any rancher, any farmer. Really. All the way up to the age of 30, and then they're set. The top 1% or higher, and the vast majority of them are black. Not just in the NFL, but in the NBA and in Major League Baseball. I thought it was so hilarious, really. But ironic to hear various black activists and Coretta Scott King echo it and the, I believe, the wife, widow, that is, of the late Jackie Robinson, decrying the small numbers of blacks in Major League Baseball. I just thought that was fascinating. When's the last time you saw a part of an inning of a baseball game? Currently, of course, the American League Championship Series is going on. The National League Championship Series is going on. When is the last time you watched a part, a glimpse of a Major League Baseball game and you were struck by the absence of so-called blacks, that is, of those who have some African lineage? When was the last time? I mean, they must be talking about back in the days of Branch Rickey, because the fact of the matter is that, again, if it's not a majority, it depends on the team, if it's not a majority, at least it is a very, very, very large number. But interestingly enough, they are excluding all blacks that are described as being Hispanic or Latino. They don't count. They don't count. It has to be just African-American, non-Latino, non-Hispanics in order to rate as being black. 
Doesn't matter if they are as black as coal. Doesn't matter if they are David Ortiz, recently retired from the Boston Red Sox, headed for the Hall of Fame. Doesn't matter who it is. John Blue Moon Odom, I guess, would be qualified, would count. But not David Ortiz. Not Alex Rodriguez. Not Pedro Martinez. Not countless others. Manny Ramirez, so on and so forth. They don't count because of Hispanic, Latino heritage. It's very interesting definition, very nebulous. And curiously here, very recently, I know that one high and mighty person was stating that Africans don't count. African-Americans don't count even, you know, if they are recently arrived from Africa, they don't count. They're different. They don't understand the American black experience. Even though slavery exists on the continent of Africa to this day, to this day, Africa existed in Brazil well past the end of slavery in the United States of America. But people from those places, black people from those places, they don't count. They haven't gone through the black Americans' experience. The black Americans' experience of receiving from the taxpayers via the federal government machinery and state government machinery, all of the blessings, all of the boatload of benefits, including so-called affirmative action, which is pro-black racism, anti-white racism. No, they haven't experienced that. Instead, they've been over there in Africa where black tribe is slaughtering black tribe. Where Arabic Islamists are torturing, murdering, slaughtering black Christians to the tune of more than two million in Sudan. Not just the Darfur tens of thousands that George Clooney was so concerned about because, in that case, there were Muslims who were dying at the hand of Muslims. So that was a crisis. But in Rwanda, and Sierra Leone, in Nigeria, and in Angola, in Ghana, in nation after nation after nation, including former Rhodesia, Zimbabwe, vicious, ruthless racism by black against whites, but predominantly black against blacks because 
the predominant race in Africa is non-white. Whites are a distinct minority, extreme minority. But these black people who've come here from Africa legally, <laughs> legally, they don't count because they haven't experienced the black experience in America, the American black experience. So when they come over here to the United States of America and they struggle and strive and labor to carve out a life for themselves, for their wives and children, for their families and loved ones, and then they are slaughtered by inner-city gangbangers. They don't understand the American black experience. I've seen case after case after case where people from Asia, from Oriental Asia, as I would describe it, Korea, China, Japan, Taiwan, Philippines, on down through Vietnam, Cambodia, and so forth, have come to this nation and worked to create a life for their families and loved ones and have had to set up shop in some extremely sketchy neighborhoods because that's all they could afford. And then they've been preyed upon by our black champions, the gangbangers, the pimp daddies, destroyers who have slaughtered them. But then there are those from Africa, from South America, from Central America, from Eastern Europe, who have suffered the same things. And they don't understand the American black experience of being so oppressed and downtrodden. No. Just like Colin Kaepernick, who has been so oppressed and downtrodden and is so sensitized to this endemic, evil, anti-black racism. Well, there is racism in the United States of America, according to the quarterback of the Seattle Seahawks, who again has been the recipient of such largesse. But he states it as a categorical fact. If you want to put racism alongside of poverty, disease, being victim of violent crime, then yes, it exists out there. But the idea that there is institutional, endemic, pervasive racism against blacks is a fiction, an absolute, utter, total 
fiction. There is racism. But it includes black versus black. How many times, just as is the case with the so-called Black Lives Matter, which means black lives of the type that we consider to be important matter most, or black lives trump all other lives, or only black lives matter, as long as they are our kind of black lives. How many times have you seen where black people are spitting on other so-called black people, brown people, so on and so forth? How many times? Do you remember that fellow in Southern California who was with the sheriff's department or police, last name Browner, I believe, who went on a rampage murdering all of these people who he was convinced had done him some harm, some slight, some wrong. Ended up murdering an oriental young woman because of her father or whatever, murdering a black man and so on and so forth. And then I saw these things. I do not follow social media. I have nothing to do with social media, and I do not follow it. But I read some stories on this, and then they would show something, some tweets and so forth. And there were many, many, many voiced statements, written statements on Twitter and so forth that were supporting him and damning those whom he murdered, including blacks, Asians, so forth. Because he was this black American man. And he was striking out at all this terrible injustice that he had purportedly, supposedly suffered. I've seen the same thing with dear old only black lives matter regarding them spitting on black police who've been murdered and so forth. But anyway, Hillary Rodham Clinton, what is she doing here? I I thought it was fascinating that in her statement, she was... calling out to the Trump supporters not to be carried away with his criticism of these protests. Not to join in. And yet here she was pandering, pandering to the enslaved Democrat black base of American blacks. Why is she pandering? It's because it's what she does. It's what she needs to do publicly, privately. That's a totally different matter. But publicly, she needs to because she's grasping for political power. She has had an unquenchable lust for political power since she was a wee one. 
her marriage alliance with William Jefferson Clinton was all about that, about fulfilling that. And she is grasping for political relevance and political power. And so she's pandering to what she views as being the lockstep Democrat black base. The Democrat Party, the dear old Democrat Party of the carpetbaggers, has received well in excess of 90% of the American black vote for decade upon decade upon decade upon decade upon decade. Now, perhaps you're acquainted with people who insist that all intelligent, educated people vote Democrat. If you've never encountered anybody like that, you are leading a sheltered life or you spend all your time working and caring for your family and loved ones. But there are a great, great many people like that out there. And oftentimes will publicly state it that all intelligent people, all educated people, all intelligent educated people vote Democrat. And any black that doesn't vote that way is an Uncle Tom. And they despise these so-called Uncle Toms. People that can actually think for themselves and are voting independent or vote Republican or vote what have you. But if they're not supporting the Democrat Party, then at least they had better not be opposing it. (laughs) Even if their votes for the Democrat Party are enabled and facilitated by being taken to the polling places and provided goodies and so on and so forth. But it's a remarkable double standard to say that all intelligent, educated, highly educated people vote Democrat even while the overwhelming, overwhelming majority, vast, vast, vast majority, practically 100%, if not 100%, of black Americans that receive welfare and such vote Democrat. Those who do not have high education, those who have not gotten a so-called good education, those who are living in the slums, those who are surrounded by terrible, terrible war zone inner city circumstances. Which isn't to say they couldn't be intelligent people, because they can be. But fascinating to label those who vote Republican as stupid, ignorant, 
uneducated or badly educated, those who vote Democrat as intelligent, highly educated. It's fascinating. It's remarkable. It's breathtaking, really. But here, dear old Rodham is appealing desperately to the black base of the Democrat Party in order to further her agenda, her lusts for power, and her plans and purposes. It is ironic that many of the players in the NFL who then join arms with those who are protesting are doing so in order to supposedly express unity for their brothers in arms in the NFL, (laughs) not in arms in the military. You know, the Pat Tillmans and Villanuevas, Alejandro Villanuevas, they are the most extreme, tiny minority. You don't have players leaving the NFL to do that. In fact, you have players coming out of the academies where it used to be, there were different rules back then before the integration by females into the academies, courtesy of our wonderful Supreme Court and former President Jimmy Carter and so forth. But back before that, they had to serve in the military. And that didn't mean being at an NFL facility and base and training and practicing and playing and so forth and going over to a military base a couple days every couple weeks and fulfilling their military requirement. That's not the way it was. But that is the way it is here in the United States of America in this brave new United States of America. But every now and then, some absolute, total, complete kook like Pat Tillman leaves all of the NFL and what it offers for him while he's in his prime, not just his prime as a man, but as an NFL player and star, leaves that behind, including being separated from his wife and goes to battle for the United States of America. No, these, these brave, courageous souls, the Kaepernicks and Russell Wilsons and the rest, they're a different, different kind. They're so much braver and more heroic than the Pat Tillmans. They're so much more patriotic. They love the flag more. They're great Americans according to the likes of Roger Goodell and so on and so forth. Well, of course, now Kaepernick is suing the NFL owners. When I say he's suing, I mean, of course, he has a law firm behind him uh, that sees big, 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 big dollar signs, great big you know, commission there for, oh, you know, racism and 
blacklisting him, blackballing him, whatever, right? Just because he was choosing to exercise his First Amendment rights. Well, exercise of First Amendment rights is not with impunity. Being in the NFL is not a birthright. It's not an entitlement. The NFL, according to various experts out there, is a meritocracy. That is, membership in the NFL, playing in the NFL, becoming a star in the NFL, remaining a star in the NFL, remaining in the NFL, is based on performance. Why then are there those who do not succeed because they're kept on the bench, because they're kept on a practice squad, because they're cut from the team, while others are given chance after chance after chance. They fail with one team. They're picked up by another. They fail with that team. They're picked up by another. They fail with that team. They're picked up by another. And each time they're being paid millions. Thinking of one big, strong, talented, black quarterback who played for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and who went from team to team to team to team, and they all paid him a bundle. But then there are others who are not given those opportunities. There are a great, great, great many outstanding college players who never make it into the NFL because the NFL owners and their managers, the front office management, deem those players to have peaked. Doesn't matter how outstanding they were in college. Doesn't matter what outstanding production they provided, including in the clutch, including bringing championships home to their respective universities. That doesn't matter if they are deemed to be too small, too slow, too far from fleet of foot, not quick enough, not agile enough, not powerful enough, not strong enough, or they don't have big enough hands. They don't have long enough fingers. They don't have long enough arms. They don't have big enough wingspan. Now, if you're not familiar with anything about the NFL draft, that all is Greek to you. But I assure you, those calculations are given great, great weight by the NFL. And the performances in the combine, which do not have anything to do with production by players during their college so-called careers. But Colin Kaepernick was blessed with opportunity after opportunity. Blessed with outstanding coaching and an outstanding team to lead as quarterback. And he achieved some success. And his 
not being picked up by some other NFL team at this point in time, that is now deemed as being illegal. (laughs) Illegal. You can't not hire me. It's fascinating. What field of endeavor is it that you or I have experienced in which the companies, not the federal government even, or the state governments, or the municipal governments, but private companies are required to hire us. Required. They have to. It's, I could say more on that, but I shan't. But this goes right along this protest goes right along with some other protests, which I will get to in just a moment. I'm Brad Thomas, and this is After All is Said and Done. After All is Said and Done, in case you're unfamiliar with it, is a news talk, public affairs, commentary program from the perspective of a Christian, this Christian, myself, and whatever you view as good about it or praiseworthy, that's thanks to God, that's thanks to the Lord, whatever you view as wrong with it, if it truly is wrong with it, that's on me. But back to dear old Rodham's statement for one minute. She states, quote, actually kneeling is a reverent position. End quote. Kneeling is a reverent position, according to none other than Hillary Rodham Clinton, who is such a great, devout worshiper of God. Kneeling is a reverent position. Really? It can be. It typically is a subservient position. It also is a position of rest. But let's just think back on the circumstances here. We're talking about two teams of men, most of them very large men, but they are standing during the playing or performance of the national anthem of the United States of America before a packed, usually packed, crowd at an arena, a sports arena auditorium. And some will place their hand over their heart with one hand, hold their helmet with the other. Others might place their hands in front of them, clasp their hands while they hold the helmet. They don't have to hold their helmet, but typically do. Or clasp their hands behind their backs, different things like that. So tell me. How are you going to visually demonstrate against this terrible, loathsome, odious, anti-black racism that they claim exists? Well, the options are few and far between. There is, of course, the black power salute, synonymous with the Black Panthers, the black communist 
Panthers. And then there's kneeling. And then there's sitting on the turf. And then there's laying down on one's back, laying down on one's side, laying down on one's front. But, you know, that's kind of hard for some of us to get up from that kind of a position, especially if you're in football gear. And it's kind of undignified, right? Undignified to lay down. Lay down on your back, on your side, on your front. Rather undignified. Undignified, too, to sit down. And it's much more difficult to get down into a sitting position on the turf and to get up from it than to simply take a knee. But interesting, she's defending the reverence of kneeling. She did not see fit to honor the reverence, the actual reverence of the kneeling of Tim Tebow. This is not spiritual. This is not Christian. This is secular. This is a secular protest by blacks as cream-colored as Colin Kaepernick, raised by whites, not his birth parents, given every opportunity in this nation, and enjoying in his lifetime a great many benefits far beyond typical life in the United States of America and lashing out at this terrible racism, anti-black racism. And she goes to bat for he and those of his ilk. And all of those who are foolish enough to join in, not in protest, but showing a display of unity and love for their brethren, their football brethren. But going back to some other protests, you know, after the skirmish between communist, socialist, leftist activists and neo-Nazis and others in Charleston, South Carolina. Of course, then there was this knee-jerk reaction by all manner of spineless pandering politicians who insisted on having statues of Robert E. Lee and Thomas Jonathan Jackson and so forth pulled down, removed, draped, even draped with burqas. It's just incredible. Fascinating, because of course those men were, oh, they were traitors to America. They were just traitors. Horrible. So according to black, various different black professors and civic leaders, you know, civic leaders, the likes of Barack Obama with his so-called community organizing, courtesy of Saul Alinsky, leftist, socialist, communist, political activist, 
who played such a role in Barack's life and in Hillary Rodham's life, mentored them, but and were, was a hero for them. White, you could say white, looked white, Jewish, socialist, communist, political, activist, leader, trainer, mentor. But these various black leaders, they insisted that these men, Robert E. Lee, Thomas Jonathan Jackson, and other outstanding officers, lead officers in the CSA, the Confederate States of America, were traitors against America. When in point of fact... Both of those men came to the aid of the Confederate states, even though neither one of them wanted a part of any war with the Union. Not because of lack of valor or bravery on their part, but they saw, they knew how destructive this would be to the nation and particularly to the South, which is where it was all fought, almost all of it fought in the South. And because they were patriots to this nation, they deferred, they attempted not to do so, but for lack of a better way to put it, say they were drafted in. They were not drafted. They were compelled to lead. These were good and godly, honorable, courageous patriots. You know, one name that you see associated with the Confederate States of America's army is rebels, Johnny Rebel. Rebels, right? What is a rebel? What, what is really a rebel? Is it a person that rebels at injustice? Because that's what the war between the states was about, was that the Union government was oppressing the southern states. In the Bible, you know, that antiquated book of old, the book of books, God Almighty says, and I will purge out from among you the rebels and them that transgress against me. I will purge out from among you the rebels and them that transgress against me. And if you read through the Bible, you'll come across rebellion here, there, and the other place. And God says rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. Well, what the southern states did, attempted to do, did, was 
parallel to what the colonists did. They rebelled against the oppressive British Empire regime. And they risked their lives, their honor, their treasure in so doing. And so too with the war between the states. So very many, not just at the highest levels of leadership, but the lowest level infantrymen, so many of them, risked, hazarded, jeopardized their lives, their future, to fight for their land, for their farm, for their family, for their loved ones, for their town, for their state, against what in point of fact was an oppressive federal regime. Whether you agree with that or not, that happens to be true. Abraham Lincoln was a consummate politician He had honed his skills in his law profession and then campaigning for office and then in office and then campaigning for office and so forth. And he extremely shrewdly, skillfully manipulated the conflict so that it was blamed on the South. And the pride and arrogance and foolishness of some of those in the South played directly into his hands. But it's a pity. It's ironic. If the colonies had not rebelled from, separated from, the iron rule of the British Empire, slavery on this continent would have been made illegal before it was, because Britain, at the insistence, at the behest of an exceedingly great man, did yield on that point, on that issue, and did eliminate slavery. It was not eliminated in Brazil. It was not eliminated in Africa. It was not eliminated in the Middle East. Not eliminated in China. But it was eliminated in the British Empire. But rebels... God said that he would purge out the rebels and those that transgressed against him. All these terrible rebels, if you want to associate the Confederate states with that, they were rebelling against the Union, but not against God. Not against God. But today, rebellion against God is at the core of America. 
at the core of America. It's in every facet of life in America. It has a stronghold in the Supreme Court and in Senate and Congress and throughout the executive branch of government as well as the judicial and the legislative branch and across this nation. Rebellion against God, rebellion in raising children, rebellion in adopting children, rebellion regarding marriage, rebellion with regard to sexuality, rebellion right across the landscape, and monstrous, wicked, perverse rebellion against God. And this nation is besieged by it. But... I'll share more on that another day. I'm Brad Thomas, and this is After All is Said and Done. After all is said and done, then we will know, won't we? But perhaps we can know now if we choose to. Thank you. Mm-hmm.